Our Old Testament reading today uh, comes from Psalm 118, where we heard our call to worship. So you will hear once again what we used as a call to worship, but I'll read the whole psalm for us this morning. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of, the, of, the, of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, two weeks ago I made reference to uh, 1 Peter 2. And it just so happened that Matt and I, without planning it, uh, without corresponding about it, uh, I having just mentioned it, he then used that as his sermon text this past week. And it was mentioned, but uh, I don't know if we went into great detail about how this is the psalm where uh, the portion from 1 Peter comes from, where it says uh, that the builders had rejected this cornerstone, right? The stone that they had rejected has become the cornerstone. It comes from this psalm. And this gives us a, you know, a great unplanned lead into this psalm for Palm Sunday. The proclamation that Jesus was the cornerstone that was being laid, though he was rejected, comes from the same passage where we have the, the saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
the same place. So we have this exclamation that was, was sung and shouted as Christ rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And so as we enter into what traditionally we call Holy Week, we're not doing so um, as if we don't know how things turned out. Sometimes the, you know, this, this season for the church can turn into a kind of almost play acting, right? You just, you pretend like for a time that we don't know whether Christ will rise again. No, we know, and we know where he's seated. We know what he's done. We know uh, what Jesus came to do, that he came to die. But it's important to remember that though that is where he was going, though that was his end, his goal, he still rode triumphantly to the praise of people into Jerusalem. And there might seem sometimes a kind of dissonance between the the joyful, triumphant spirit of the triumphal entry of Christ and then the more somber reflective and grief-stricken note of Good Friday. But there's no dissonance when we remember that this is exactly what Christ came to do. This is how he came to be triumphant. He came to give up his life. He came as a lamb among wolves. He came as a lamb led to the slaughter. And he laid down his life willingly and freely. It was not taken from him. But he laid it down. And so, as we enter into this week, we can join in and say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And though we live in a world where you will have distress, you can still know with confidence that your God has answered your plight already in the sending of his son to overcome the world. Right? You can say with the psalmist, the Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. There are those who hate you in this world. There are those who hate Christ, and because they hate Christ, they hate you. There are true enemies in this world, and yet he has already overcome them. He has already triumphed over them, and so then have you. The triumph of Jesus Christ is a reminder that it's better to take refuge in the Lord than in the powers of this world, in the authorities of this world, in worldly strength. The Lord will cut off your enemies as he cut off the enemies of Jesus Christ. And as this is a, a psalm of ascent, as there's this movement in the psalm, a movement up toward the sacrifice, right? A movement to go up to the temple. So we, we join in spiritually, in a sense, that movement, right? Saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king who is worshipped from the Lord's house and who is also the sacrifice for our sins. He is the lamb that was bound and taken to the horns of the altar, he is your atonement. So blessed is he. Blessed is this one. It's in him that the Lord has shown his face upon you. 
It's through him that God smiles on you. So then, bind up the festal sacrifice of your praise. Bring your songs of sorrow and triumph and bring them to Jesus Christ, whose name is lifted high in both. Once more, as this psalm begins and ends, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. What is the, the sign of, of God's love for us? Right? How has he shown us his love? It's in the sacrifice of his son. It's in the death of Jesus Christ that he shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, he has shown his love for us in that Christ died for us. We're going to be uh, having a Good Friday service here uh, on Friday at 6.30. Uh, we will be participating in the Lord's Supper that night, um, and that's uh, when we will partake of the Lord's Supper this month as a church. Um, and so I'd encourage you this week as we, in a particular way, uh, think about the, the death of our Lord, his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. That you would meditate upon the love of God that he has poured out through the death of Christ. Um, that you could come then to the table of the Lord with the, the confident proclamation of the death of Christ in your place. Our New Testament reading today comes from Luke chapter 19. We'll be reading from verse 28 to verse 40. Hear this word of the Lord. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem really was triumphal. It really was triumphant. The fact that shortly afterward he would be crucified doesn't take away from that. Because, again, as we said before, this is what Jesus came to do. He was doing what he had set out to do from the beginning. The Son of Man came 
that he might give up his life as a ransom for many. This was what his life was always driving toward. And here, as he entered into the city, he did so as a rightful king. It was right for the disciples to cry out in praise and to declare him to be the one who came in the name of the Lord. And not only that, but as we stand on this side of that triumphal entry and on this side of his death and his resurrection, it's fitting that we should join in their praise. It's fitting that your life be given to the outpouring of thanksgiving and worship that was displayed by the disciples. It's right for you to throw down the cloak of your glory and your honor and to lay it all down that he might present himself to the world through you. This is then our goal for today. That we would dwell upon, meditate on, and, and learn more of what it would look like if our lives would be reoriented, in a sense, around the suffering and conquering king. Now, it's from the, the Mount of Olives that Jesus looks across to the city of Jerusalem, and he sends two of his disciples to go and find the colt of a donkey. The Mount of Olives, or Olivet, as it's called here, sat just east of the city. Jerusalem itself was a city on a mountain. It was, it was set on a hill. And so here you have two mountains, so to speak, sitting next to each other. Jesus on one looking at the other, looking across especially at the temple, which was somewhat elevated. The first time that the Mount of Olives is ever mentioned in Scripture, at least by that name, is in first, or rather 2 Samuel chapter 15. And it happens to be when David is fleeing from Jerusalem and he ascends the, the Mount of Olives, fleeing from the rebellion of Absalom, his son, fleeing from the coup that Absalom was leading. And we're told that he looked down in grief at the city as he fled from it from the Mount of Olives. And so here, too, we have a king, the Davidic king, looking down at this city, at what is rightfully his city. But he's not fleeing it. He's going to descend into it. I also can't help any time I hear, you know, or see in Scripture these, this contrast between two different mountains. I can't help but think of of the people of Israel being told by Moses, by the Lord through Moses, that when they were to come into the promised land, they were supposed to stand on two different mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And they were commanded to stand on either side. There's a valley in between them and to, to speak out curses toward Mount Ebal and blessings toward Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim was known for being more lush, more fertile. Uh, Mount Ebal was known for being more arid or dry. And so even just visibly, it would have been uh, s symbolically representing blessing and, and curse. And it was to represent 
what would happen for the people if they remained in covenant with the Lord. That they would be blessed, that they would receive blessing. But the curses were called out to represent what would happen to those who would reject God's covenant, walk away from his covenant. The curse of the covenant, of a broken covenant, would fall on them. Well, here Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, a fertile mountain where the olive groves grew, and he looks over across the valley at a place where even what olive tree he finds, he's going to curse, and it's going to wither. A spiritually barren and dark place that's full of people trying to find a way to kill him. So the king will enter triumphantly into a a cursed city, a city that he was to conquer, but only by first taking up their curse upon himself. So then why does he send disciples to go and find the colt of a donkey? Maybe you've just taken that for granted. You know, it's just part of, you know, the, the story of Holy Week. We're just used to it. So maybe you haven't thought about it a lot, but there's a lot of intention in this act. There are at least three different stories that I can think of from the Old Testament that I think will help illustrate what exactly is being said and being made known by this act. I think it'll help us. And I'm not even including uh, the prophecy from the prophet Zechariah about the Messiah entering in on the colt of a donkey. That's important. It does fulfill prophecy, but this is also a symbolic act that carries with it a lot more meaning that's been developed throughout Scripture. The first connection that can be made is when we see two men sent off to look for this donkey or the colt of a donkey. Israel's first king engages in something very similar. Saul, the son of Kish, was sent by his father and one other man, or or with one other man, with a servant, to go and find lost donkeys. And it's while he's looking for those donkeys that he is anointed as Israel's first king. It's while looking for those donkeys that he finds Samuel. So then this act of going off, going and finding this donkey is tied to something of what happened to Israel's first king. Do you remember that Saul was not a good king? He was not representative of what God wanted for the kings of Israel. And the kingdom was stripped from him and his family line, and it was given to David. It might be good then to also note that Saul never found the donkeys that he was sent I mean, they did show up, but uh, we're told that he returned home without the donkeys, and they were already back. They had already returned home without him. So he does not come riding these donkeys back home. Instead, they're just already there. There's a contrast then. Jesus already knows where the colt is to be found. He knows where to look for it. He tells his disciples where to go. And he tells those that are going to look that they will find it and how to bring it back. The second story I want to mention is from the life of Solomon. This then is in the line of David. If you remember, 
while David was passing away, there was a bit of conflict about who was going to be king. Solomon was to be the next king, uh, but there was going to be some upheaval in the kingdom. There was going to be fighting over the throne. And so David, in order to establish Solomon as his chosen heir, calls together Bathsheba and, and the high priest, and he tells them what they are to do in order to make it known that Solomon is the rightful king. He is the rightful heir. It's that he was to be put on David's own mule, and he was to ride then up to the throne. He was to ride through the city up to the throne with people singing and, and crying before and behind him, with the priest blowing on a loud trumpet. This was the sign that he was the chosen heir, that he was the one to succeed David. And the last story I want to make mention to, and maybe there are more uh, that would connect to this, but uh, as I was preparing, these are the ones that seemed uh, most illustrative of what is being done by Jesus. Thirdly, the, the story comes from 2 Kings chapter 9, where we have the anointing of Jehu, the king, by the prophet Elisha. And we're just told that after he's anointed king, that those around him, the men around him, threw their cloaks on the steps so that he could walk over their cloaks, their garments. Um, and that's how they, they showed their reverence, their honor, in order to proclaim, yes, this is the king. Right? They would throw these things down. And if we take all of this together, right, all of these stories, why am I telling you all these other stories? That's not the text we're in. Well, if we take all of these stories together and also include this mention of the Mount of Olives, as David had fled from the city and first been said to ascend the Mount of Olives. If we bring all of that together, I think that gives us a much more well-rounded understanding of what Christ is doing, what he is saying as he rides into the city on the colt of a donkey. Jesus is king. Like that's, that's what all of this is saying. That's what all of this is pointing toward. The reason that the people were shouting Hosanna to the son of David was because the son of David, the rightful king, was entering the city, bringing salvation. And maybe not everybody who was around understood that. Some maybe thought that they were simply taking part in some kind of you know, ritual celebration leading up to Passover. It's not clear to me that everybody knew what was going on. Uh, but we do know that some of the disciples did. They, they knew what was happening. They knew what they were celebrating. They knew what they were crying out and why they were crying these things out. They cried out for the same reason that people rejoiced and sang when Solomon rode into town on the king's mule. They throw their cloaks and garments on the ground for the same reason that men did for Jehu. Because truly this is the king of Israel. This is the king now entering the cities, truly is the king of the Jews. But even they did not quite realize what that meant. What it meant that Christ had to do in order to establish that kingdom. What he was about to lay down. What he was about to give up. But Jesus did. He knew full well. He had set his face toward Jerusalem. 
and he descended once again. Maybe not literally descended. I mean, he did descend. He had to cross a valley to come up into the city. So he did, in some sense, descend. I don't know the exact geography uh, of, you know, is Jerusalem higher than the Mount of Olives? I don't actually know. When he goes to the temple, which is directly after this triumphal entry, you know, is the temple higher than where he was standing? I don't really know the exact details. But what we can say is that spiritually speaking, he was descending into Jerusalem. Just as he descended from heaven to earth in his incarnation, so now he descends from the Mount of Olives and moves toward this place of curse, the place where he will lay down his life. But for his disciples, this did mean salvation. For you, this meant salvation. That's why he went down, why he descended, why he mounted the coal. This was the king who came in the name of the Lord, who all blessing belongs to, whose salvation belongs to, because he would take it up. He is the one that brings peace. He is the one that will be glorified. So some of the disciples had some idea of what was going to happen. But they're not the only ones. The Pharisees also knew what was going on. The Pharisees knew what Jesus was saying by riding on this colt. They understood what it represented. And so they say, verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees get the symbolism. They understand. They, they understand what the disciples are saying. And they understand that this was no mere reenactment of what had happened in the past. They had already determined to kill Jesus. They were just looking for the right way to do it. And to them, this was blasphemous. Right? They would think, this isn't our king. Later, they would say, we have no king but Caesar. They wanted to be the ones with power, even if that meant having power that was subsidiary to some other earthly power, like the power of Rome. They wanted control over the people. They wanted glory and honor for themselves. They wanted public praise and reverence and financial benefit of this position that they held. And as they watch, in total contrast to that, what do the disciples of Jesus do? They take off their coats, their outer garments, and they lay them down so that not, not even Jesus can walk over them, but so that an animal that Jesus is riding can walk over them. And Jesus isn't even directly on that colt. He's, he's riding on some of their cloaks, on top of that colt, he is so far set aside. He is so far given a place of honor and dignity. So here their, their coats, their outer garments are being trampled in the mud. And they're singing. And they're dancing and they're rejoicing and praising. They're humiliating themselves, aren't they? This is reminiscent of another story. I'm going to keep going back 
because this helps us to understand what's going on. But this, this reminds us of when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time. And he stripped down to no more than a loincloth. The text says naked, which probably meant just a loincloth. Right? He, he took all of his outer garments off. And he goes in front of the, the tabernacle, the, the presence of God as it enters the city. And he's dancing and he's singing and he's celebrating the king doing this. And if you remember, his wife, the daughter of Saul, Michal, watches this. And then she chides him for it. Right? How could a king humiliate himself like this? How could a king throw down his honor and glory and dignity like that? And David says, you know, he's just going to keep on doing it. That's a paraphrase. Uh, but, of course, he's going to keep, keep doing this. Of course, he's going to keep praising God in this way. Well, the Pharisees are, in essence, standing in that same position. Right? As Christ is riding into the city... The proper response is exactly what the disciples are doing. But they stand over them and judge. They're standing in this position of Michal, right? How backwards and humiliating that they would do these things, they say, right? How dishonorable that these people would give honor to this Nazarene and maybe secretly thinking, and not to us. If this were happening to them, you have to believe they would have received it but they can't stand that another gets it. They were God's chosen leaders. They were the men of renown, the men of the establishment. They were the ones that knew what God wanted for everyone else. They were favored by the Roman officials. And yet, these know-nothing, poor, uneducated fishermen were singing praise to Jesus. They were laying down their garments for a carpenter's son, for the animal that the carpenter's son was riding on. And sometimes we don't, we don't get all of what's going on because, you know, we tend to be a little bit Gnostic, especially when it comes to clothing. Right? We don't think that clothing really, you know, matters. It's just personal choice, right? That's, that's what we think. There's no, there's no meaning inherent in how we dress. But that's not how the scripture speaks. There is meaning. For instance, you know, we're not totally Gnostic about this because if I came up today, as we were jokingly saying yesterday while we were moving things, and I'm in a ratty sweatshirt and torn up, dirty blue jeans. If I came up here to preach dressed like that, you would all think, what's going on, right? You would you'd think there's something wrong with this picture, right? Because we know that how you dress means something. It carries some meaning and some weight of some kind. And that's what these people believed. That's what they knew. That their outer garments represented something of their dignity and their honor and their glory, their position in the world, their influence, their power, their wealth. And the disciples are throwing this down. They're laying it all down in the mud so that Jesus can present himself to Jerusalem riding over top of them. They're casting it all down. So the Pharisees tell Jesus to rebuke them. They speak to the king that way. Right? You see how they feel about Jesus, that they can go to him. 
and order him around and tell him that he should be rebuking his disciples. They command him. But what these Pharisees don't recognize is what we've said, that the disciples are doing the exact right thing in this moment. There is not a more fitting way to act as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem than to triumphantly and joyfully thank God and, and sing praises to God and, and lay down the honor and dignity that they have in front of him. It's exactly right. And Jesus tells them, I tell you, if these were silent, the disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. So fitting was the worship of this triumphal king that if people wouldn't do it, then the rocks would have to. Right? So it had to be this way. It was right. It had to happen. This was, this was in tune with reality. In a way, the stones were crying out. Right? Living stones of a new temple that Jesus was to build. Jesus was, was about to head directly for the temple. If we kept reading in Luke, he goes right to the temple. And he goes and he cleanses the temple. He goes in and he drives out the money collectors. And he cleanses a temple that one day he was going to destroy and take down stone by stone. But in this moment, a chorus of new living stones was starting to cry out. Right? The start of a new temple. A new temple that Jesus says would be torn down, but he would rebuild in three days. So let me ask you, as, as we read this passage, do you see yourself in this story? Right? Do you see your place in this narrative? And I'm not talking about some kind of you know, exegesis or eisegesis, I should say, where you're, you're making it all about you. But as we hear this story, do you understand the role that you are to play? the place that you are to play in what's going on. Because we're not, when, when we read about what Christ did, we're, the Gospels are not just there to give us the facts of history and how things went down. We get that, we receive that, and that's important, but it's not just that. It is more than that. This is the, the, a living story. As, as the Holy Spirit brings to life the Word of God, then what role are you to then play in it? Think about that. Jesus knew the kind of world that he was entering into. Like we said, the disciples maybe didn't realize the cost, what it would cost a king like this to enter into a cursed city. They didn't realize what it was going to take, but Jesus knew. He wasn't unaware. He wasn't unaware of the darkness in people's hearts. He knew this was a world full of bitterness and resentment, hatred and murder. He knew this was a world of child sacrifice and sexual exploitation and the surgical mutilation of bodies. He knew this was a place of unfaithfulness and violence and nihilism and idolatry. 
He knew that this was a cursed place, a cursed world. And yet he still came. He set his face and he came to bear it and to break it and then to remake it. He came to shake the world so that only that which stands remains. He came in order to make it new. And to, to that end, he came to die. He came to become the curse. But in the laying down of his life in Jerusalem, he was not only bringing his triumphal reign to Jerusalem. Right? This triumphal entry of his, it was in one particular place, but it was not for just that one particular place. He came for the world. He rode into Jerusalem for you and for me. This is just what the world needed. This is just right, exactly right. The rightful ruler, the rightful king. The creation itself awaited his day with eager anticipation, which is why the stones would have cried out if people didn't. If the people around didn't do the job that they had in that moment, if they didn't play the role that they had in that moment, something else would have taken their place because it needed to happen. And now that he has ascended, as he has conquered sin, death, the world, and the devil, he says now that we are his witnesses, that you've been sent out. But he doesn't say you're sent out just to Jerusalem, right, but also to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What that means then is that Jesus' victory march, his triumphal entry, in a certain way continues. And it's you, his people, his disciples going before him, rejoicing and praising God for his mighty works. His path, his triumphal procession is marked as you lay down the outer garments and cloaks of your lives. Right? Your lives being the means by which he presents himself to the world. In the laying down of your lives, you're making known that Jesus Christ is the rightful ruler of the world. Just as his disciples made it known that he was a rightful ruler of Jerusalem. So in that sense, in that way, we carry on this story, right? We carry on this triumphal procession. And so if Jesus came into this world and said that it was fitting for people to triumph and to, to praise him as the king, even though he came to die, then as you go out into this world, a world full of darkness and unrighteousness, of truly demonic evils, you can also rejoice and praise and give thanks and sing. But how can that be? Again, this is what we brought up at the beginning, that there seems to be a little bit of a dissonance to those two things, doesn't there? We sometimes will talk about the triumphal entry as, well, it really wasn't that triumphal, because just a short time later, just a few days later, Christ was crucified. And the people that were singing all scattered and, and ran and fled and abandoned him or betrayed him. But Jesus still says, knowing that that's what's coming, 
he still says that if those people were silent, the stones would cry out. He still says that, that praise and singing is so right that it has to happen, even if they won't take part in it. Knowing of the death and suffering and the pain that was coming, yet it was still right for God's people to rejoice. Because, again, this was always his plan. God has sent us out into the world so that he might bring his gospel to those who are far off, so that he might bring his praise to the ends of the earth, and so that he might bring that reality, right? his intent in riding into Jerusalem, leading up to his death and his resurrection, that he might bring that to the whole of the world. And as we do that, we're told that we will face what he faced. Right? We will experience the same thing that he experienced. The world will hate us as it hated him. But what can the world do to us? What the world can do to us should not keep us from rejoicing, from triumphing in our Lord. What can the world do to us? Well, they will slander us. Maybe they will mock us. And then we will rejoice all the more, as Jesus told us to do. They will cut us out of economies, give us no straw while still demanding bricks. And what can we do? We'll heed the words of Scripture, right? We'll work hard, quietly, building and caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens. They will hate us as they hated him. And what will we do? We will love them. We will bless them as they curse us. We will live lives of covenantal faithfulness, raising families, building businesses, passing laws, and we're going to create the kind of world that brings blessing to our neighbors. In whatever sphere God has given us influence and authority. We will pray for them and so heap burning coals on their heads. And when they persecute us and slap one cheek, we will give them the other. When they ask for our coat, we will give them another one. When they ask for a coat and we give them another one, we can do so because we know we've already given it all up, throwing it down at the feet of Christ. When they throw us in prisons, we will sing hymns of triumph and joy. And what if they kill us like they killed him? Well, we are already dead. We have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And even though we die, yet we know that we will live again. And through this body of death, as we lay our lives down in any way and in every way that Christ calls us to, that through this body of death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the life of Jesus Christ is made known to the world, is presented to the world. It's shown forth to those in darkness. So as we do all of this, as our lives are made a living sacrifice that is wholly pleasing to God, we are preparing the path for our King. 
We're preparing the way for him to ride along and to reign in this world. That's the place that we hold in the story. That's, that's the part of the story that we are to take part in. Brothers and sisters, into the dark void of this world, Jesus Christ, the fullness who fills all in all, entered in triumphantly. So we join then with the other disciples in his day, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. My Hosanna, Lord, save your people. Peace in heaven, glory to God in the highest. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are in awe of your power and might. And we do say, blessed are you. Right? Blessed are you who came in the name of the Lord, that you would save us, that you would establish your kingdom, and that you would bring us into it, make us a part of it. Lord, help us not to be prideful and to keep to ourselves the honor and glory, the dignity, the wealth, the power, the influence, anything that you have given us in this world, but to freely lay it down, to freely lay down our lives that we might present you to this world, that we might make known that you are the king. We pray for your help and the power of your spirit and your mercy, O oh God, in Christ's name, amen.